0: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are joined today by Christopher Hurtado. He's, th- thanks for coming back, Christopher.
1: It's good to be with you.
0: Ben had called me earlier today, and he said, I'm sick can we reschedule recording? <laughs> I said, sure. He's like, or, or even better call Christopher. I said, okay, I'll call Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> <It will laughs> so, too, ben. so, so Ben is getting some much needed rest and, and we'll be back with us next week. So thank you for joining in again. My pleasure. So we are discussing sections 106, 107 and 108 but we're going to spend most of our time here with Section 107 because it's it's kind of the, the elephant in the room. It's the behemoth. It's the really big one in our sections of reading for this week. So last week we talked about Zion's camp. And with Zion's camp, this was a really big turning point in church history because they had gone down, just like we talked about, they'd gone down to Missouri to try to reclaim Jackson County. They never actually did it. And there was all this violent rhetoric about God Telling them to go down and to reclaim the land and go to his power and to vanquish the enemies and to take care of his enemies. And yet, God always stops short into telling him how to do this. And so, we talked about how there was this not a misunderstanding, but and not even maybe an ignorance is not really the word I'm looking for, but they, they didn't know how to go about doing this. So, there's a lot of violent rhetoric that they had talked about, and they they were trying to get upwards to 500 men to go down, they ended up with 200. And the 200 was enough to really turn the Missourian feeling against the saints. Because up to that point, it was really just the people in Jackson County, the Missourians in Jackson County. But when the saints showed up with the 200 men walking through these towns, it it really showed this formidable force walking through the frontier like they were really up to no good. And so the Mormons got this reputation that was, it's both kind of deserved and undeserved. Like, like their intention, you know, there were some hotheads there, but their real intention was to go down. They thought that the governor was going to help them and they were just going to try to go down there and to help settle and to get the people back into their homes. But what it was perceived was that they were a formidable fighting army that wanted to go through and, and actually have a fight. And so it was that reputation that ended up following him down there and kind of framing the, the Mormon narrative for a while. But once Joseph, once he came back into Kirtland, the, the men who had come with him into, uh, into Zion's camp were now who Joseph pulls from for the church administration and for the church leadership positions until his death. And it seems to be that that trip, that saga of going down and coming back, forged loyalties and bonds that Joseph believed were very important. And Joseph was a really big loyalty guy. And so as he's coming back, what we're going to begin to notice from for the rest of the year with the DNC is that these sections are going to start to become fewer and more sparse and parsed out as as they go because they're going to be each section is going to be further away from the one before it. Because from here on out, we're not going to be talking so much about just revelation for revelation's sake, or maybe even calling on missions. But these are going to be turned far more administrative. We're going to see a lot of kind of more administrative vibe. Um, not to say that everything's going to be administration, but we're going to kind of see this this more institutional vibe um, take hold. And and the whole doctrine and covenants is really about forming and structuring the church. But before, there's a lot of like little doctrines that are formed along the way, and a lot of the Lord telling the saints how to go and what to go and do. And now it's really about establishing the church and, and getting that institution ready. And so we're going to see that a lot in 107. And we're going to return to some themes that we had way back into section 20. We talked about the constitution of the church and the structuring of the church, but we're going to kind of get them into more detail there. But in section 106, we have this in November of 1834, and it's a revelation given to Warren Cowdrey, the brother of Oliver Cowdery. In this section, it's really about Warren Cowdery being called as a local officer in the church. And just like with the revelations that ta- spoke to these missionaries who go out and abroad, you get this quick revelation. I'm calling it a quick revelation, but I don't know how fast Joseph was able to receive it. But you have these revelations that Joseph would give to the missionaries as they would go out. There would be a comfort to them as they would go out, kind of their own predecessor to a patriarchal blessing, as it were. And we can see the section 106 is largely that way. And one of the things that stood out to me here was in verse 4, And again, verily I say unto you, The coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. Therefore gird up your loins, that you may be the children of light. And that day shall not overtake you as a thief so uh, so Christopher, what we've heard this before this is usually kind of in a negative term, but it seems to be here that the Lord is using this as a as a a warning and also as an encouragement. Uh, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night, almost as if the world's not ready for it because that thief in the night usually kind of inspires. A little bit of fear, but is it fear that we're talking about here? Do you think God's trying to inspire fear, or do you think it's more of a surprise element or a preparation element, or that the people are not prepared for what the Lord has ever been trying to reveal to them at all?
1: I think so. I mean, I think it's about fear. The the idea is if you're the world, then you're going to be taken by surprise by this. But if you're a child of light, you're not of the world, and you're not overtaken by it as a thief in the night. By the way, the expression of it was really poetic. In what way? Just those two verses, you know, sort of how it goes in and reverses out. Yeah. It just struck me as poetic. By the way, another comment I had going back to the companions of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I just couldn't help but see a parallel between that scenario of the leadership coming out of the close companions of the Prophet. And I'm using, as an Islamicist, I'm seeing a parallel with the Prophet Muhammad and his close companions, the the Salihin, as they're called, and they become the first five successors to Muhammad. And so the leadership uh, in that religion comes out of those close companions, just as we see here with the Prophet Joseph.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting how new religious leaders who Max Weber, the, the famous sociologist, he frames the the originators of religious movements, uh, the very first leader, the first to market that starts the new religion as the charismatic leader. And so if any of the listeners, if, if you've ever heard of a church leader being called charismatic, or especially, specifically Joseph Smith being called charismatic that's more than just what the word in the dictionary might mean. Charisma is this whole meaning that Max Weber brings about as to what a charismatic leader is who starts religious movements. And Muhammad would be one. Joseph Smith would be one, right? And what's fascinating is that most of the time, for using a Weberian analysis, it's really not the charismatic leader that really starts the church or really perpetuates it. He, the charismatic leader may start it, but it's the second leader, what, what Max Weber calls the priest, that really is the one who solidifies and makes sure whether or not this thing is actually going to take over and, and to be what it's going to be, right? And so that's going to be in Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint tradition, that's going to be Brigham Young. And Brigham Young's definitely within the parameters of what that priest is going to be in the, in the barbarian analysis. And, and it's kind of through this time where we start to see Joseph really bringing in a lot of those leaders who exhibit a lot of these qualities of a, as a priest and the barbarian priest. Much more authoritarian, much more iron fisted much more regulated and, and not so principled and kind of a big funnel person, right? Joseph was this really big funnel person, bring everybody in, have everybody come at the table, really open. And Brigham had kind of turned that on its head. And, and so he kind of started to close it off and really start to deal with who and what he had. Now, they still had missionaries that'd go out, but they weren't looking for a wide array of people. They were looking specifically more to become more righteous among their only membership right
1: yeah you know i wouldn't go, go into detail at this time but the parallels between uh the the muslim brigham young who would be abu Bakr, and even the the controversy over who would be the successor of the prophet are also there between islam and mormonism and that's interesting for those curious about that it's easy to learn more about that
0: where would you go to learn about that
1: I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. I was having this conversation. in the spot. Sorry, I was having this conversation with my wife before, because we've been having a, a few conversations with uh, with friends and family, and and they always like, oh, what's the citation for that? And we're like, I've been studying this for ten years. Um, it's just like common knowledge now. I was like, where, where where is that one article? <laughs> Right. So yes, know, it, may not,
1: it may not be as easy as I've, as I've suggested to learn more about this. I have been studying this for some time. It's, um, I, I've, I'm often accused of, of saying things and then and thinking, you know, doesn't everybody know this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've fallen into that trap in, in, in a very specific
1: niche of, uh, of thought as well. So, I think, it's you like- know, any, anyone curious can, can probably find out more about this
0: it's true hey, drop us a note drop us a line if anybody's yeah. curious about it uh, one thing i've learned about christopher over me. the years you know how long have we known each other well over 10 years uh, christopher is one of the the most giving people if you reach out and have any questions about islam or its origins um anything whatsoever yeah, christopher's always more than than uh, willing to 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 tell impart you all about that it. knowledge yeah he will tell yeah. them all about it <laughs> So, in Section 107, this is given in March of 1835. So, we're moving right along, and really through this time, again, we've had the, we've had the whole Zion's Camp movement come in, come back, and, and now it, they're still doubling down on the School of the Prophets. And this School of the Prophets was a really big deal. It's where they received their training, they talked about theory, they had training in language, they had training in scriptures. You know, when we, like in Section 88... It talks about being trained in theory more perfectly. This is all language that's that's being directed to the School of the Prophets. And so one of the things that came out of the School of the Prophets is this little book called The Lectures on Faith. And The Lectures on Faith are a series of seven lectures, seven articles, and they're written catechism style, which is like a question-answer. It's a very Catholic way of writing, and it really establishes theology. So where if you ask a question, you get an answer. And if that answer brings up another question, you'd answer another question. And so you create like a formal systematic question and answer. And also in the lectures on faith, you end up having a lot of emphasis given to the time and the dates, the ages of the Bible and, you know, the biblical history, the ages, who, who lived when, where and how and, and how for how long. And we're going to see that a little bit in Section 107, because that's very much the vibe that's going on. They're really pouring into the Bible, and they're, and this is a restoration movement. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which that's not the name of the church yet. They're not going to get that uh, name until 1838, because they went through several name changes up and until that point. So I think we're at the Church of Christ right now, maybe the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, but of Latter-day Saints won't appear until 1838. But at this time, we have the School of the Prophets that's talking about this way of preaching the Bible, and so they're really pouring into it. The church is a restoration movement. There are other restorationist churches at the time, and there is this very much a vibe, a social vibe, even outside of the church, of churches wanting to be the primitive church, the original church, going back to the very beginning. Right, So, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was one of many religions having the same claim. And so, as time progresses, Joseph wants to formalize more and more how this is going to look. Right, So, so we come here to uh, section 107, and it says right out the bat, this is going to be a section on priesthood. And we're going to talk a little bit about priesthood here but it's about the Melchizedek and about the Aaronic, and and here we have this this really interesting verse in verse 3. Before his day, the priesthood, this priesthood, was called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being, to avoid too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church, in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek, or the Melchizedek priesthood. So the real name of the priesthood is not the Melchizedek priesthood, it's the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. Right? Now, I don't under I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna bring in my own ignorance here, and maybe you have an, a better answer, Christopher. But with the emphasis that's been given on the proper name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and to use the name of Jesus Christ, that's a name we wanted to use a lot and to emphasize. I don't understand the the crossover here in verse three with the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, and not using Son of God out of respect for the name. Whereas on one hand we do it for the church. That's one of those things that I'm still researching and, and grappling with. Do you have any any thoughts on that?
1: You know, not really. I mean, other than two, I, I actually had a comment that's related. You know, I mean, I was thinking. I wonder what it was like for the early saints when the church changed names. We just went through something like that, right? Where we say, okay, we're not calling ourselves this anymore. We're calling ourselves that. And by the way, that being called Mormons, we've gone back and forth on that one throughout church history, right? But there, there were the other name changes and there's an identity that goes with naming and, and who knows what that was like for them. We're, we're going through that ourselves. I can tell you that, that Melchizedek, it comes from you know two words in Hebrew, Melki and tzedek, which is something like my king, the righteous one. Not king of righteousness, but my king, the righteous one.
0: And how do you think that's going to help frame the this thing that they're experiencing with the naming?
1: I don't know. I don't. I don't think you know. It's. I hear this, and I hear this is rhetoric, right? We're, we're going to say this is holy. We don't say it. On the other hand, we're going to say now. Hey, listen, we need people to know this is the actual Church of Christ. By the way, the the priesthood after the order of the Son of God, the holy priesthood, what is it? The holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God doesn't name the Son of God. And so what's the problem? And now uh, we're actually going to name the Son of God, and we want to make sure that that name is prominent. Times change. There's, There's just a different... I think there's a different context for it. And so in that context, you know, it's about, because there's this common understanding of one of the commandments says, thou shalt not take, I'm going to say it says, thou shalt not take upon thyself the name of thy Lord in vain, but it's usually translated, thou shalt not take uh, the, the, the name of the Lord in vain. And people think it's about using the Lord's name vainly meaning repetitiously or frequently, and maybe even vulgarly, right? Like an expletive. Right. I mean, certainly if you have respect for God, you're not going to do that. But that's not what it's really saying. It's saying don't take upon yourself the name of uh, God in vain such that you would call yourself a Christian and not act like a Christian. Remember, you know, in the whole Old Testament, in the whole Jewish Bible, you have God looking for a body, and while, the, while his people are over here making a, a calf, which, which isn't completely unrelated to their image of God, it wasn't this random thing they are doing, um, to embody God, he wants them, he wants the people to embody him. And when he frees them from slavery in Egypt and they go off and enslave other people to, to do the same thing to, to other people that was done to them wrongly, he he says guys you know th- this isn't he wants them to embody who and what god is that when people look at christians for example to bring it into into new testament speak that they see what christ looks like and they don't get the wrong impression that we don't make christ look bad that's on us right
0: yeah you know when you said that that brought me back to section 1 where it talks about us making the image of god in our countenance yeah and you know that 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 thing all the time that you know, and we've talked about it quite a bit but it's that whole was it voltaire said something to the effect of in the beginning god made man in his image and man being a gentleman has ever tried to return the favor yeah it's that you know that same kind of thing that the more we talk about our idea of god we're really telling everyone more about ourselves than we're actually telling them about god it's that ability of Writing God into our countenance, and, and and yeah, that is one of those things we've talked a lot about about the cloud, the Israelite cloud, and the and the and the Jaredite cloud that went before them, because that cloud was it's undefined. It, you can't put it into a box. You can't mold it into an image. Um, for those who have ever been inside of a cloud, you know you know like really heavy, dense fog. You can usually see like three, four feet in front of you in really dense fog, and then everything else disappears in the cloud. But when you try to go touch it, you move two feet away. All of a sudden, all you see is two feet coming out in front of you. So you're never actually able to get over to where you're like actually touching the cloud, right? It's just the way that that appears to us. But eventually, the Israelites want to make God in their image. Some, and, and it's not even in their express image with their you know two eyes, a nose, a mouth, ears, a head. But it's in the image that they can craft, that they can understand, that they can be able to make sense out of.
1: Whereas God wants them to reflect his image in their being. He wants that when people look at his people, that they see what he really looks like.
0: Yeah. Which is what repentance is all about, right? Seeing God in a different way, seeing ourselves in a different way, and seeing each other in a different way. It's the process by which we get rid of our projection of God, and we finally learn to be able to bring His image into our countenance. But the big question is, how do we do that? How, how does that process work? And, and that's really one of those, those <laughs> lifelong dis- discussions that I don't think we're going to be able to answer in a, <laughs> in a 60-minute podcast. But in moving on, you know, one of the ideas here in Section 107 that I think is important to remember is that... The idea here is that all priesthood is Melchizedek. There's really just one priesthood. And to kind of differentiate what is seen versus what is not initially seen, we have it distinguished into two priesthoods. And the lesser, what was called the lesser, you know, the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood, is that which we can see, that which is present, right? Right. Um, it's it's the one that is deals with all of the the physicality and everything around us. So if you can, if you can see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, basically, it's within the realm and the justification and the jurisdiction of the Aaronic priesthood.
1: And ironically, it, it's the one that holds the key to the ministering of angels, which we cannot see. Isn't that curious?
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Or is it that we have to redefine what we think ministry angels means?
1: Right. Yeah. And and our Aaronic priesthood holders out there tapping into this, you know, using these keys to the ministering of angels. What would you say, uh, how, how would you define ministering of angels in this context?
0: So in church history, we're going to have John the Baptist coming in a miraculous way, right? He's physically there and he's physically giving them a blessing, giving them the Aaronic priesthood. In one sense, that's a ministering angel. But I've also had ministering angels in my life when a neighbor comes over in a moment when I've needed and is just brought over. You know, for as much as we dog on people bringing cookies, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I'm, g- I'm going to say, you can bring me cookies anytime.
1: <laughs> so, so the cookies don't have to have little pieces of paper. They don't have to be fortune cookies for them to be messengers. Angel means messenger, right? Right. The message so could just be the cookie itself.
0: It could just be the cookie itself, right? The it's, intentionality. Because it
1: says, I love you, right?
0: Yeah. Th- th- even if you're just out there just doing things to do things, um, just to check a checkbox off, there's still something that's going on. There's 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 still something that's imparted
1: there, right? There's a loving so, intention. There is, right? And, you know, I've had, I can think of someone, uh, her name was Gloria, which is interesting because when I was a kid, we had a nativity set where the angel was holding up a, I don't know what to call it, a banner that said Gloria. And for me as a kid, that was her name. Oh, her name is Gloria, right? But she was saying glory to God in the highest, uh, you know, because Christ is born. So I'm thinking of Gloria as an angel. And then I meet this professor at BYU when I'm at BYU, whose name is Gloria. And whenever I saw her, every single time that I saw her and whatever she said to me, struck me as a message from uh, from God to me. And so I just thought of her as an angel. Obviously, you know, if she has a message for me from God, every time I see her, she's she's my angel. Wonderful woman. That's neat.
0: You know, So with the discussion here of the Melchizedek priesthood, one of the – so we see this whole thing as, as priesthood being everything, right? The Melchizedek priesthood or this, uh, this order after the Son of God, right? It's that holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. It constitutes everything, but we distinguish it between the, the two, the physical and the spiritual, that which is temporal versus that which is eternal. And the Melchizedek is that is is everything. The Aaronic is just that which we see. And so the bishop is called as a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood, but he officiates in Aaronic ordinances, things to take care of the physical welfare of of those in the church. Whereas then, the Section 107 is going to go through, and it's going to talk about the hierarchy. So this is where we're going to get into a, a lot of formal hierarchy. This is where the First Presidency is formally created. The, the Twelve are now more formally created as a body underneath the First Presidency. We're going to have the Seventy. We're going to then go through and talk about priests, teachers, and deacons in the Aaronic Priesthood. All of that's here. And, and I don't, we're not going to really emphasize much of that here in, uh, in this episode.
1: It gets pretty, pretty administrative, authoritarian, bureaucratic. I mean, all of that's going on, right? And it, you know, what's above what, and what's beneath what, and how everything's related to everything else. That time, it's the church manual, right? What is it? What is that? What they call it? The church manual? The manual of instruction? No.
0: Yeah, like the, like the yeah the leadership ha- the general handbook of instruction.
1: There you go. The general handbook. Th- th- this section. And really by the way this is this these are what two revelations cobbled together where, where Joseph Smith is putting forward all that he has received so far all that he knows about and understands about the priesthood in this general handbook of instruction called section 107 right that that has been in some sense superseded in some ways it, we still do things the same way and in other ways we don't the whole thing is expanded right and 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 so it's changed somewhat along the way
0: so one of the things, and in fact, it's really the primary thing, Christopher. I think we could talk about it and like be done for, be done for the the day with this. But one of the things that I thought was really important to bring out, and it's one that Ben and I have talked about, and you and I have talked about this personally a lot, and it's it's really the the one note I keep on playing, <laughs> I keep on playing, but it's it's that of modality and the modality of religion. For whatever reason, when I first started getting into that, it's. It, it, it awoken this thing that I was able to finally see things as I'd never seen them before. And so, and so, it has a lot of meaning for me. Now, this might not land for anyone else. And so, to talk about things in terms of modality.
1: Well, why don't you define that? It's, you know, so I, I see where you're coming from. Right? Having, having a word, to, you know, a concept to, to put ideas in, right? to, that where the ideas fit and you can talk about it, that can be really helpful, right? And so, just tell us what you mean by that. Sure. So, you know, as you and I were
0: talking beforehand, and, and I've, I've explained a little bit before, modality is any experience that we can have or, or any formal uh, thing that we can go to, that we can focus our intentionality into to produce an experience. So, for instance, with prayer, you know, there are dozens of different ways of praying. And when I say the, when I say the sentence, I am going to go pray to God that simple simple sentence i am going to go pray to god
1: by which mean you're going to you mean you're going to have a conversation with god i'm going to talk to god and god's going to talk to me there's sure. a lot going on there there is so much going on with that phrase right because
0: for instance just the i you know we could have an entire podcast series on just what it means for the i the ego the i the self the the aware you know the the thinking thing right You know, there's so much that we can talk about the I. So just even saying I is a story. And so one of the things that I talk about modality. So you asked, what is modality? So modality is a story. It's a story that we participate and act in. And what I mean by that is that, for instance, when I say I'm going to go pray to God, what that phrase means is a very rich, complex story. Of an interwoven web of
1: belief. There's a script that I'm going to play out, right?
0: Right. It, it it posits the I. It posits that I can go be intentional with something. So it posits this intentionality. It posits that there is a God and that there's a, there is a God who cares. And so, and so that whole discussion, man, I, we could have a year worth of podcasts on whether or not God cares about us at all, right? And that's that's without.
1: And that's without even bringing in Bill Clinton to talk about the verb to be.
0: Right. (laughs) Because
1: that was in there too, right?
0: Right. So you have all of these things that are in that one phrase. I'm going to go talk with God. Pray to talk with God. And so prayer, just the act of getting down on our knees – and vocalizing or subvocalizing or even just meditating in silence as a form of prayer or lectyodivity, whatever the form of prayer is, something so simple as prayer, the assumptions there are so great. There's this entire spectrum of assumptions that that come to a point in that one moment, an act of prayer. We bring all of those stories to a point where we pour our intentionality into the present moment to be able to
1: produce an experience. Yeah, or like when people ask me why why I came to Bakersfield, and I tell them God told me to come here. I mean, just, I'd have to go into, when they're asking this, and it's just casual conversation, they don't even really know me. I'd have to, we'd have to talk for a long time. Right. For me to, for me to say something other than, you know, God told me to come here. And by the way, if God told me to come here, uh, it was through you, Shiloh. So that would make you an angel, right? You were the messenger of God in this whole move, right? So there, there's so much going on there, right? Yeah. We say these statements all the time about things
0: and very rarely do we ever address the assumptions that we, we make and we bring to these simple phrases.
1: No, and conveniently, usually, maybe not with the people I'm meeting randomly asking me this question. They might think I'm really weird. Uh, although here in Bakersfield, we have a lot of religiosity and a, lo- a lot of religious diversity. So there's, there's a sense of, okay, yeah, we, we all think that there's a God, right? And there's a sense of, well, you may have a different way of thinking about that than I am, than I do. So, okay, whatever you say, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when we talk with each other and we say these phrases, we don't analyze it for each other and we don't analyze it for ourselves. Like like yeah, this is so one of those unobserved things that we, that we experience, but we never really identify. Th- th- this goes back to what I think what Socrates was trying to get at when he's like the unobserved life is not worth living. It's th- it's that we actually take time to see the assumptions. We see the things that, that, that we become aware and observe ourselves and everything that we bring to the table when we make these kinds of statements.
1: Absolutely. And one of the reasons I love having interfaith dialogue is because usually when we're saying these things, again, not these people I'm meeting that I've just described, but usually we say these things to people who already have the same idea we have. The, the story that we're telling is a story that's familiar to them. And actually, even with, you know, in, in interfaith dialogue, there's still somewhat that, right? There's still, okay, there's a God. You can talk to him. There's such a thing as prayer, all of this is common right and so when we say these things we're, we're talking about something that the people that we're talking to have a context for we share these stories
0: yeah yeah i like that shared stories i like that because when when we realize that the mo- these modalities that we create that we create or that are created that we participate in Like, for instance, if you take someone off the street who's never really had the sacrament, the missionaries can talk with them, they can baptize them, they can teach them a little bit about what the sacrament means, but they're going to participate in this modality without having any real meaning as to what it means. And they're going to learn that over time. They're going to participate in a story without having any background to it. But the more that we participate in these modalities, there's a story to the sacrament. Right? We're, we're, We're coming into an action with a right, and that right has meaning because there's a story behind it.
1: Oh yeah, and and the story that you know, the earliest story that I had around it was Lutheran, and you know, being a convert from Lutheranism to Mormonism, that story doesn't go away. Yeah, I get that there's a different story of Mormonism, but I still have that's part of my context. Uh, is and maybe I'm not even usually aware of this. This is something for me to really. Do like Socrates says and examine myself when I'm going through this experience of, of participating in that. Right, is how much of that meaning is still with me. I think a lot of it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's what I'm saying is that we bring our own personal meaning into each
1: one of these modes. Oh yeah, then there's personal meaning, right? I mean, I was talking about a different institutional meaning that was taught to me as a boy, but then there's the per- then there's there's a the difference between what I was taught and what I understood, right? What I learned. So there's a very personal aspect to this. You know, My, I, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and so I have co-religionists in one sense and another sense. I don't know that I believe the same things that they believe in the same way. Right. Yeah. My, my wife says I have my own religion. <laughs> I think she's right. I, I'm okay with that.
0: I think. I think, I think too, we all actually. do.
1: Yes. I think exactly. we all
0: do. If you were to stand every Latter-day Saint shoulder to shoulder, and if you were to ask him the simple question of what is the pure nature of God? Now, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of overlap. You're going to get a lot of people saying a lot of the same thing over and over and over again. You know, and for Latter-day Saints, we <laughs> we really like to double down on the embodiment of God. God has a body. But if we really get down into the the absolute metadata of God's divine nature, we're going to have as many different answers as we have Latter-day Saints.
1: Right. On the surface, you might get some, some standard answers, right? Mormon standard answers, some canned answers. But if you press farther, you say, okay, what does that mean? Then you'll see the variance, right? Then you're going to have variants uh, as many as there are individuals, right? As many right. meanings as there are individuals, you ask. You know, I find comfort in, in Rumi's statement that there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth, in a conversation like this, yeah, there's a path for me, yeah, and it's mine.
0: You know, so this sets up a, a discussion where I know a lot of people have pushed back on this saying, well, d- that just means that everything is subjective. And I'm like, it, in, in a way, yes. In another way, no. Objectively, we're all experiencing things because we are meaning-making machines, creating our own meaning within the shared rituals of our community. Right. Because in just just like what you said with uh, with your own private religion, when you partake of the sacrament, Christopher, you know, you said you brought in your your Lutheranism and and you may not even know it. There, there right. may be elements and threads and experiences. Maybe you had experiences with with the sacrament as a Lutheran that when when you were a child that frame subconsciously how you come to the story of the sacrament nowadays.
1: Well, how about this? I had a conversation in my own family about this recently. We called it something different. We called it communion. And so to me, regardless of what it's named, whether you call it the communion or the sacrament, right? It is about communion. And that's what's possible. And that's what's happening. You see, so that's present to me. And I'm not sure that's present to someone who, you know, who grows up with the sacrament and communion isn't part of that conversation, the word communion.
0: Yeah. You know, I, this reminds me in one of my uh, in one of my classes in studying religion. You know, we talked about the King James Bible. It, it's, it's an American Scripture class I'm taking, and and we're talking about how the first American translations of the Bible, especially from the uh, the RV coming into the uh, the RSV and then the NIV, and about now wait how a minute. I'm,
1: not, I'm not familiar with the Recreational Vehicle Bible, <laughs> <laughs> the RV, the, re,
0: the Revised Version, ah, and. Okay. And then you have, and then you have the,
1: uh, just so we all know what we're talking about.
0: Right. (laughs) The revised standard version. And so with these different versions, it it was really kind of a social um, shock because the, the King James Bible, the KJV had become the subconscious voice of America i mean the the rhetoric and the po- the poeticism and everything that was in the kjv was the language and the meaning from that language and oh, yeah. and not only and it went even deeper in that people didn't even see that they they didn't even comprehend that there could be a bible that changed meanings that there was a different meaning to it because the bible was just reality
1: yeah what would the, that be right Yeah. I mean, this is what, this is the concept of a shared book. That shared book made everyone who shared that book one people. And to introduce another version of that book is what is that? That's not who we are. That's not what's got to do with us.
0: (laughs) But, but it really is kind of an illusion. We, we have this kind of unity through, through what we think is a shared like we're sharing the exact same kind of experience.
1: Right, and that's not true and we've already discussed that, right? But at least we right. have this book in common and and we think we probably think that others understand it the same way we do. Well, here's the reality back to Socrates. We're not really thinking about it, right? If we thought about it, surely we we could all figure out for ourselves that they're probably thinking about it at least somewhat differently than I am.
0: Right. Now, we can say that structurally The story is set up. So I don't, I don't have the authority to frame the narrative of the sacrament for, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have no authority there. I'm not, I'm not the one who's in a position to be able to say what it means or to amend the prayer or to do anything, right? I, I don't set the story. So what happens is I get to choose to come into an institutional mode of, of it meaning one thing. And then I bring my own personal intentionality into that experience which is completely biased to my own subjectivity so when i experience that i I can understand the story that the church has framed about what the sacrament means as they interpret the scriptures and as they have modern day revelation
1: and that's in some sense the objective part of it
0: and right and that and that is what we can see is the objective part but even that
1: is not really objective
0: is not really objective, right?
1: But it look but in this conversation it looks like the objective side and the subjective side is my experience of it, right?
0: Correct. And that's exactly what I was getting at is that then when I come into that moment I'm experiencing it from my own personal bias, my own personal beliefs. Everyone in the congregation, we all agree that there is one person who's saying the prayer, that this person is participating in this rite and this ritual and that we're now participating in this as as a community as if we are participating in the same story. But in reality, we're all experiencing it in completely different ways. And so that's really what I'm getting at with modality.
1: And the way that it that it changes, right, institutionally, because it does change sometimes, is everybody agrees that we're going to change. Of course, there's someone with authority, as you pointed out, who says, okay, it's changing. And then everybody else just agrees to that because they are submitting to that authority. And now we don't do it on our knees anymore. And we just sit in our chairs, in our pews, Right. Right
0: now from and i know this is this can be seen at this can be perceived as very controversial because we take very metaphysical absolutisms in our truth claims and what you and i are doing is we're having a very staunch ep- epistemic conversation of epistemology where we're not having a discussion of reality we're having a discussion of how we view reality
1: our perception of it
0: yeah our perception our of
1: understanding it. of it our knowledge of it yeah
0: and so for instance when we say that that the President Nelson has the authority, you know, we take that as a metaphysical truth statement. And, and so what you and I are having a conversation is, is, well, how do we perceive, how do we perceive that truth statement? And then how does that respond to and how do we experience that in our own subjective lives? Right. And so when we go into that shared experience as part of the, the seeming objective side of it, we see that the sacrament means something that it's done with the correct and proper authority, that and the authority is part of the story. So when when I say that modality is a story, a lot of the times we want to think that this this is a uh, a metaphysical component, and that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about story in a metaphysical way. We're talking about this as is as, as a matter of epistemology. So when I say that we come into that sacrament. And we all have the same shared story that this is done by authority. It's done by someone who, who has, who can do this with a particular language, the right language, you know, the right rhetoric, the ritual rhetoric and, and the, the right symbols and the right meaning with the sacrament is we're, we're partaking of it. That is all a story. Now, by story, we mean a framework of ideas that we experience. They can be reflective of, of reality, sure, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the reality or the truthfulness of it. We're talking about the experience of it. Did I or explain the that well? experience
1: is real. For sure, right? If nothing else, the experience is real. We know that for sure. Is there a, re- a reality beyond that? We believe there is. And that's the point, right? This is a, a matter of belief. Um, if we know, then we don't have faith. We don't need faith if we know. Faith is about not knowing and believing
0: right and so yeah, so that experience that experience we're going to know is our experience. Yes, we feel we are experiencing something, and there's an objectivity to that, but what we're feeling is very subjective to ourselves, right? It is so, yeah. There's just there's this really great conversation between the object and subjectivity of these experiences of how we show up to the modes of our religious experience. And the whole reason I bring that up here is, you know, Christopher, you and I could go through 107 and talk about all of the different hierarchies of the church. And and the fact is that we'd just be repeating stuff that everybody already knows. Well, that's all you
1: can do. This is the story here. It's being framed in this section. And now we take that story and we act into it. Right. That's what we do. That that's what there is to do.
0: Right. So so what we're doing here what I wanted to 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 bring about here is to show that priesthood is it, it can be real. It can be a fiction. Oh, I we're not dealing with the fact of what priesthood is. We're talking about priesthood as a story that we we're participate about in.
1: how we interact with it, right? How we that, participate in it. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah, so we're talking about that that thing. And so as such we begin to realize that section that sections like 107 are the ways in which Joseph threw whatever means that he had and whatever and the connection to that. And I don't know how Joseph experienced God.
1: You know, it but, occurs to me to say this, uh, Shiloh. You know, I, I can't know whether priesthood has a metaphysical reality or not. I can choose to believe. And in choosing to believe, I'm exercising faith. And when, as, I, as I pour that faith into it and that intentionality into it, into my experience of it, then it manifests in a way that is real in my experience. Right. And that can be a shared experience with others who are, who are participating in the same way. And that's what matters. Right. To me and my experience, right?
0: Yeah. So that's what I see is, is, the, is the, for me anyway, right now, is the big takeaway of 107. And of this week's reading is that for me, it's the construction, the original framework, the the building of the mode of priesthood. So that thing that we have now that we participate in, that, you know, that this is as objective, the framework of that discussion as we can get the distinction between the spiritual and the physical, the story about what this thing is. And then that way, we have a construct that when we think about it, we interact with it in a particular way. We pour our intentionality into it now in a particular way.
1: Well, put another way, Shiloh, when we say the priesthood, what we mean is see section 107 in some sense, right? What does that mean? When we say the priesthood, what does that mean? Well, see section 107. It's this thing. And, and other sections, of course. Right, right. You know, like section
0: 20 and, and other sections that talk about it, correct.
1: And sections not yet revealed at this point.
0: And so one of the things that I think is fascinating is we have this thing about continuing revelation, right? And why do we need continued revelation if we didn't get, you know, did we get it right the first time? Did we not get it right the first time? There's been a lot of changes in the church over time. And, you know, there's been major policies that have changed. And and they're not always just, a a lot of the time they're time specific, right? Like the three-hour block church. That was very—that was very, uh, had high utility in the day that they had it, because they had all those meetings spread out all throughout the week, right? And it was hard to get to go home and then to come back. And, and it, maybe it worked in Utah, where everybody was really close to the chapel, but if they had Latter-day Saints away, you know, outside of Utah, who lived far away from the chapel to go and to come back or to go and come back or to have to bring a lunch and just to be at the church the whole day, you know, to be able to make a block of meetings was meaningful. But over time, it became cumbersome, and you know I've I've heard some some talk about how the brethren were becoming very aware of the weight that this was having unnecessarily, and, and that we could be able to alleviate this and to 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 reappropriate the time that we were spending in church to be able to have these time this time with our family
1: and with God and with God exactly without being a church
0: with right. our family yeah. With our family. And so, you know, these policies change. And so these policies are very time and space and the needs that are there um, for the people. And then there are stories that come into our religious modalities that are time-specific, but not because they're eternal truths. But, you know, there's a—not to get too controversial, but there's a lot that's been written on the priesthood ban of African-Americans or any non-white males— why did that happen? You know, the whole reason as to why that happened has been now disavowed by the church. You know, the, the first presidency made several statements over the years saying this is the reason why. And that the reason why was because they promoted that, that black people and African Americans, anybody who had darker skin, were fence sitters in the pre-existence. Or that they had, uh, that they hadn't really lived up to, up to the promises. So when they came down here, they had, they weren't given the priesthood here because of the curse of Cain, that all, that all black people were seen as coming from the lineage of Cain, from Cain and Abel. And he was cursed of the priesthood, so they'd be cursed of the priesthood. And the church is, and the church has walked back on that policy itself. You know, so that, that's, that's something that it disavows. So those were the reasons for the policy.
1: And that was a story that people really believed in. And if you go and compare that with, um, with, you know, the story that Elijah Muhammad told in the Nation of Islam and, and what's called the, the Black Muslim Movement, uh, is another name for it in America. You would think the, the story is crazy, but your story is, is just as crazy, right? It's just, right. it's this story that's not true, right? About right. who, you know, what blacks are and what whites are in their case, you know, uh, conversely.
0: Right, but what we have to recognize is that this this policy of how we saw black people, and, and and I have I have this old book. It's called Mormonism and the Negro by John Stewart. It's a compilation of all the church quotes. It's it's really just an apologetic treatment of trying to justify the church's policy. And it goes through all and it has all the quotes in it from the general authorities, d- distinguishing why they thought that that black people were fence sitters and they were the indecisive ones in their pre existence, and so they they didn't come here and they didn't have. Um, they didn't have white bodies to be able to be able to be given the priesthood and and again the churches walked you know we don't believe that anymore so, but this was a story that was introduced into the modality of of I'm going to use the word mormonism
1: or well, think, priesthood in particular right
0: yeah yeah this was a very real part of what n- priesthood means of, is it
1: something that you have to be white to have yes that, i mean it was right that's that's part of it or right. was part of it
0: That's exactly right. So, part of the modality, part of the story of priesthood, used to be you had to be white, and we've taken that thread and that narrative out of the priesthood modality. It no longer exists there. That's no longer a thing.
1: Well, Shiloh, if you if you get to be controversial, I get to be controversial too, don't I? (laughs) Because in in one sense, you know, if we look at our church history, the you know women have had the priesthood since 1846, and yet. Not, you know, so there's, there's, there's a part of this story that relates to women and it's changed over time, just like it has with blacks, right?
0: Yeah. And, and that's the thing is, is this is how we create the modalities of our religious worship is through these stories about what these things mean that we pour our intentionality into. And it's the grand story of what these things mean. And and I love what she said there, that this was a part of the modality and the narrative of priesthood until it wasn't. To be white, what meant, had extreme meaning into what priesthood meant and what it meant to engage in it. As it does now to be male, right? As it does now to be male. That's correct. Right? And and in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of things given as to how they've changed and have brought women more into the narrative. Now it's, they have priesthood power, with their husbands, right? You know, they have the full priesthood power in themselves, but in connection with the, with the authority of their husband.
1: And yet the narrative has changed, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And so, And so these things, these narratives change, and this is how things progress forward. And we begin to see, you know, we can say, yeah, these things, and it's within the modality of revelation. Revelation in itself is a mode.
1: Right, so to go back to your original question, you know, uh, does – why don't we get the, the, the revelation right in the first place? How does this work? You know, if I could take a stab at that question, my, this is, this is an answer. I like to say this is an answer. It's not the answer is that God is, of course, revealing himself to us. The question is, can we see him? And a lot of times it's, it's our own sun. I know you've talked about sunglasses in the context of the temple, right? Where in the temple, the lights go up and down to to signify uh, degrees of glory where it might have been better to have a couple of pairs of sunglasses on <laughs> right. and then take them off one at a time to get the lights to come up because the light's actually always there. So God is all, is always there a, a, as what he is, right? As the divine is what the divine is. And yet what we see is not all of that, not all at once. And so he's revealing himself, but we're not seeing him. And we're, and and yet we are, we are, but just not all at once. Part of those sunglasses, it occurs to me to add this, part of the the sunglasses are our own cultural context. I mean, look at the whole issue of blacks in the priesthood. Think about the possibility of uh, women in the priesthood working the same way. It's about our cultural context. Those are the sunglasses.
0: Yeah, And that cultural context works in a lot of different ways. You know, we hear a lot of the time when Brigham was the major one who enforced the ban, um, with blacks in the priesthood, the, you know, we say that he was a man of his time. When in reality, there were many members of the 12 who were, you know, abolition minded and, and they were anti slavery and they were anti the ban, as it were.
1: And then there was Joseph and and Brigham, right? There's a difference between those two, but you've already pointed to that, right? In a barbarian sense. They fit that mold, right? Joseph was much more open to women in the priesthood, to blacks in the priesthood than Brigham Young. Right. Yeah, yeah. In there. fact,
0: it was my, my great, 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 great. Is it four greats? <laughs> anyway, there's a few greats in there, but is my uncle, Zebedee Coltrane, who was one of the ones who has been demonstrated to have if not bearing false witness or just maybe bending the truth or maybe giving his own personal opinion or we, we don't know, but he was one of those who testified with Brigham Young about how, um, Joseph giving the priesthood to Elijah Abel was kind of a, a wink and a nod. Like, like, you know, and when he was made a 70 at the same time that, uh, that Zebedee Coltrane, when Elijah Abel was made a 70 the same way that Col- uh, Coltrane was, um, it seemed to be the culture was a little bit upset with this.
1: I'm not following you, Shadow. What are we talking about here?
0: Okay. So when, so, so Joseph gave Elijah Abel a black man the priesthood oh, and, okay. and, and set him apart as a 70. And so years and years later, when Brigham's
1: wife and all the sisters threw her the priesthood,
0: right? And so we have, and so we have with uh, Elijah Abel this, this controversy that Joseph gave a black man the priesthood. And then Brigham is the one who, who then bans it. But before he bans it, Zebedee Coltrane, and I think it's Smoot, um, Ibrahim Smoot, who, who together, cause Smoot was a slaveholder in Utah. He was, he was a, a leader of the church. And he's, in fact, he, the building in BYU campus, um, he had, uh, two slaves and he brought them out to Utah. And so those two testified to Brigham that, especially Zebedee, that he was there and made a 70 the same day that Elijah Abel was with Joseph. And that Joseph kind of on the side basically just said, you know, it. I'm just kind of appeasing Elijah Abel. It, it, this wasn't a
1: really real, you know,
0: ordination.
1: Is our friend and, Stephen Smoot related to that Smoot? I'm just curious of, of Book of Mormon Central. I have I have no idea.
0: So the uh, so this story the story is is that that is becomes the that becomes the the testimony that then begins the the policy ban. And that's my great-great-great-uncle, you know, my great-great-grandfather's Graham Coltrane, who also knew Joseph Smith. But we begin to see that these narratives and these stories within the modes will change. But I liked what you said there, Christopher. It's about the belief that we choose to have in these things and the intentionality. You know, I, I like the way that Fowler, James Fowler, he writes a book called The Stages of Faith— And he distinguishes between faith and belief. And the way he distinguishes and talks about faith is that it's basically the the innermost intimate essence of our soul. Belief is? No, faith is.
1: Faith is, okay.
0: It's that thing that often goes most unexamined in our lives, but it's the thing that causes us to act to put one foot in front of the other.
1: Well, yeah, we say faith is a principle of action, right? That's, That's what it is. We're acting in faith, and that's we, we think that this is something religious, but if you go turn the faucet and expect water to come out, that's an act of faith. You don't know with a capital K that water's going to come out because maybe your wife didn't pay the bill or there's been a terrorist attack upstream somewhere or something, right? You just don't know, but you you really have experience that when you turn on faucets, water comes out. You don't go to the doorknob and turn it and expect water to come out. That's not how faith works.
0: Right. So, yeah, when when we see this faith, I I like to think of it in terms of of intentionality. That faith and intentionality are often the same thing. If not, they go so intimately together that it's hard to distinguish one from the other. And and so it's pouring that faith, or we might say the intentionality, into these modes, these ideas, these stories. And, And it's
1: because we choose to believe. Belief is an assent to a proposition, the proposition is the story. There's this story. We assent to it. And so then we act in faith based on that assent. And we get, you know, we actually get an experience that's real. No matter what else is true or false or real or not, right? We get an experience that's real. There's no denying the, re- the reality of that experience. And it's a shared experience often
0: mm-hmm.
1: fading together, right?
0: Yeah. And I'll I'll even take it to kind of to this one last uh, to this one last possibility, you know, with having a lot of friends who've who've left the church and who we can explain this in terms of the modality of of the church no longer works with them. Hmm. Yet, but it's interesting is that I have so many friends who talk that, for instance, they. They recognize the spiritual experiences that they had while they were members of the church, and they don't feel like they have to reject them.
1: I know exactly what you mean. I just had a conversation like this.
0: Right? You don't have to reject where you've come from because you can accept that you were using the modality to have a real-life experience with God, and it was producing a real-life experience with God. And as they've recognized in their own lives that they're called to it on a different path, that they're now experiencing God with a different modality,
1: right? And, Maybe and it, they may even think of themselves as having transcended this particular modality,
0: transcended or have or have just shifted. You know, exhausted
1: it, it, it in some sense.
0: Yeah, for themselves personally, right? Right. And so you can you don't have to reject or ridicule or look back with disdain. You don't have to be able to turn back and say that was evil, that was wrong when you leave it, you can accept all the spiritual and or experiences that you had while growing. Now I know this is highly controversial. There's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot that can kick back on this because it um when we treat the gospel as terms of, of stories and modalities, there does come a certain element where we're like, well what about the truth, the, the truth claims of priesthood being a metaphysical truth? Right. But then I, again, the discussion here is not about the truth of one thing or another. It's about the experience that people are having to these things. And so we're just, we're talking in the realm of experience with, with this podcast. And, and I think we've walked a really good line, Christopher, in, in not having to venture over into the, the truth claims or the, you know, the, the existence or the non-existence of priesthood as it is, but how we, epistemically construct these things and then experience them. I think we've walked a pretty good line with that.
1: I hope so. That's been my intention.
0: Awesome. Well, do you have anything, any last thoughts or concepts or any, anything before,
1: uh, before we close? No, I think it's been a great conversation, Shiloh. I appreciate you inviting me into it and letting me share in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if there's any questions that anyone has about
0: uh, the conversation, I know, as I've talked about modality with, uh, with friends, there's a lot of questions that pop up. And, uh, and so I try to answer them as quickly as I can. Now I am personally taking a Facebook hiatus. (laughs) Me too. Five years now. You're in a five years uh, hiatus. (laughs) But man, I'm, uh, I am so swamped with, uh, with, with school. I, I am trying to find a new normal. And I realized that, uh, that my dopamine relationship with social media was not healthy. So I needed (laughs) (laughs) to, I needed to find a, a new normal for a little while. So. If you, if you get onto Facebook, we do a lot of, uh, through Facebook and through Instagram into Latter Day Peace Studies. Lindsay Owen is always there and, and, and she's awesome. She's, she's the one who produces all of our daily content and all of the, the uh, the stuff that we put out with it with the memes and and the messages and I I just absolutely love it every every single day I still have Instagram on my phone I'm not an Instagram guy I just kind of get on and look at things here and there and then I'm off of it and it, it, anyway so I still get to see what Lindsay posts but if you have any comments any thoughts any questions definitely go on to uh, Latter Day Peace Studies uh,
1: on Facebook send us a message and as, as you've pointed out Shiloh I'm not on you know I'm not on Facebook but. I, I've got plenty of Google juice. You, you want my phone number? You want my email? It's out there. Call me, email me. I'm open to conversation. Love to talk to you. Awesome,
0: Christopher Hurtado. And so the uh, look him up, Google him. Yeah, the, you you do have a lot of Google juice out there. <laughs> yeah so yeah send us a message um if you direct it towards me um ben is still on uh social media and, and still on facebook that's and, helpful uh,
1: somebody's got to be on there eh? <laughs> somebody's got to be on
0: there
1: <laughs> so, get well soon ben
0: yeah get well soon ben and uh, and, we'll, and we'll look forward to having you back but uh awesome well until next week i'm shallow logan and i'm christopher Hurtado. thanks for listening